Well, good morning. I'd like to say it's so good to see you, but I can't see you. I can't wait until I can see you. Missing you guys so very much. Uh, if you're watching South City this morning, you're not a, a partner of ours, not usually with us on Sundays. Man, we're just so glad that you've chosen to watch with us today. And we hope that when uh, this COVID-19 thing ends, that you'll come and uh, partner with us here at South City on mission for the Lord all around Central Arkansas. God is doing so much in us, and uh, we hope that you'll come and see that for yourself. Hey, listen, I just want to make a comment that does look like the light is, is kind of at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully we're going to have a plan uh, for when we're going to get back together and begin services again. We're hoping that's next Sunday. Uh, we don't know for sure. We've got to wait until tomorrow until the governor gives us his um, uh, news pressing about kind of what the plan is for churches. Um, but we, we're hoping that we can begin slow and we're going to roll out a whole communication plan. So be watching your email if you're a partner uh, or if you're regular to us. And we'll also have it on social media as well as far as whether or not we're going to have a service uh, here on campus starting next Sunday. We hope so. I'm sure looking forward to seeing you whenever that is that we get to get back. Hey, I also want to just say a big, huge thank you to Jeff Franks for teaching last week. He did a fabulous job, and I can't imagine anybody else uh, preaching that message but Jeff for us. And so, Jeff, thank you. We love you and appreciate you sharing with us about the church at Smyrna. Of course, that church was a persecuted church, Jeff told us. And uh, the thing is, is it's not the only persecuted church in this list of seven churches that we're looking at. In fact, today we're going to look at a church in the city of Pergamum, and it was definitely a, a persecuted group of people as well. You know, I try to think in this crazy season we've been in, I don't know about you, but uh, it just feels crazy. I just feel like I'm going crazy at times with all the weirdness that's still lingering here in our culture. Sometimes I just wish I could talk to Jesus now, I know I can talk to Jesus. I know I can pray. But I mean, I just wish we could get face to face. I wish I could say, Lord, are we doing all that you want us to do? Are we who you want us to be? Or is there anything we should stop doing? Anything we, we need to do better? And what's so amazing about this series is that's exactly what Jesus did for these churches uh, in Asia Minor here in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of Revelation. He basically told them the things that he was pleased with, and then he also rebuked them for the things that he wasn't pleased with, and he gave them this incredible opportunity of grace to repent and be the church that, that he's calling them to be, and, and in that same grace, he offers us an opportunity of repentance as well to be the people he wants us to be as well. So this is an exciting series that we're in called Ecclesia, where Jesus literally sends seven letters to seven pastors of seven churches, and he does it all through the Apostle John. Uh, it's an incredible story, all that truly happened, and we get to benefit uh, from what he spoke to those churches. So today we talk about the church at Pergamon. Well, let me tell you a little, a little bit about Pergamon. So this is a little town. It's 60 miles north, just up the coast uh, from Smyrna. So we first of all talked about Ephesus, uh, which the island of Patmos that John was on is just, uh, just west in the sea, Aegean Sea. Uh, of Ephesus. Then you go up a little ways from Ephesus is Smyrna, and you go up a little ways from Smyrna is uh, Pergamum, the, the, the city we're speaking of today. It's 15 miles inland uh, of the Aegean Sea. It's the most famous city in Asia. This is, a, this is a big deal. This is a powerful city. It was home to kings. In fact, it was the capital of the kingdom of Pergamum. And then later when the Roman occupation came in, uh, Rome made it the capital 
uh, of the province of Asia. So this was a political and very important city. Uh, it was a very spiritual city, but not in a good sense. It was a very dark, demonic, horrible, horrible, evil city. Uh, they had temples and, and uh, sanctuaries for different gods. If you were in this city, you could look in any direction and see smoke being offered to demonic gods. This is not a good place. They had a temple for Zeus, a temple for Athena. Uh, they had a temple for uh, Dionysus. They had a temple for uh, Asclepius, who is, uh, you might remember, is the god uh, of healing, they, they thought, that was represented by the serpents around a staff we still see on ambulances and in the medical field today. They had a, a, a temple for the Egyptian god uh, Serepsis. They had sanctuaries for Greek gods Demeter and Hera. And, and interestingly and sort of grossly as well, they had a temple uh, for the cult of Rome. In other words, when Rome came over and came in and took control of this area, they created a religion to worship Rome and its emperors. It's a gross thing, and, uh, but it just followed suit with the rest of their demonic worship. This was a town uh, where men were worshipped as gods. In fact, the people who were uh, rulers, uh, one assumed the title of king and savior, and his son assumed the title of savior and god. Well, what that reminds me of is that back in heaven, Lucifer wanted to be above God. You find this in, in Isaiah 14, but... Uh, Lucifer wanted to ascend the throne of God. He wanted his throne to be above God's throne. And anytime a man wants to be called God and wants to be seen as God, uh, it is obviously evil. It is obviously demonic. It is sinful. And this is a town of sinful men who wanted to be worshipped. I couldn't help but think about uh, the God King they called him in the movie, the 300, uh, the Parisian king that thought he was immortal until, until King Leonidas threw a spear and, and cut him on his cheek, and he realized not only can he bleed, he can also die. I, I couldn't help but think about this guy who thought he was uh, the Lord and Savior as well. Of course, he was not, and neither were these men. Pergamum was an incredibly evil place. And what's so interesting about this letter, though, is yet God had a remnant of believers in this evil location that were living for him. They were standing up for him. They were standing for his name. They were not denying uh, the faith that they had in Christ. And that is a beautiful picture of what we can be in the culture that we live in as well. I want to get to the text this morning. Revelation 2, uh, verses 12 through 17 says this, and, the angel, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Would you pray with me this morning?
Father God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this beautiful opportunity we have to to listen to the conversations that you had with these churches and to glean from those conversations who it is you want us to be as a people and as a church. So God, I pray with all of my heart that you open our eyes to the truth of your word, that you help us to understand what it is that you're saying to this church. God, my prayer is that I would decrease in this time and that you would increase. And Holy Spirit of the living God, would you lead us to all truth and help us to understand all that you want us to know so that we can be the people you want us to be. Lord, we love you so very much. We give you this morning. We give you this message. We pray that we would uh, uh, have the courage, Lord, to be obedient to whatever it is you lead us to do, however you'd have us to repent and bow our lives before you, Jesus. Give us that courage now, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, sometimes we read Revelation, at least for me, I'm sure it is for you too. Sometimes I can read Revelation, and it's, it's hard to read. Um, and there are times where there's so much imagery and there's so many references of things that I might not know or understand or be uh, aware of that sometimes I sort of just skip over those things until I get to something I do know about or something that I do understand, and then I let that bless me. But the problem is, then we miss all that God wants to show us. And so today I really want us to dig in deep into what Jesus is speaking to this church. What does he mean by the imagery, by all the things that he's saying and, and speaking of historically? And what does this mean for us in our lives? So what we're going to do is, and we're going to do this through the whole series, we're going to look at this text through three lenses. Uh, we're going to look through the lens of imagery. In other words, there's, Jesus is, is, is speaking something that we may not understand what he means. What does that mean? And what does it mean to the context of the audience that he's speaking to? What does it mean to us? We're also going to look through the lens of uh, history. And we're going to say, who are these references that Jesus is referencing to? What is their story? What, do, what does it mean that he's mentioned them uh, to this church in Pergamum? And then also, most importantly, we're going to let those two things inform uh, the lens of spirituality. Who do we need to be? What do we see mistakes being made, being done in this church that, that we may be making? What needs to happen in their lives to bring them back to Jesus? What needs to happen in our lives to bring us back to Jesus? And so the most important lens that we look at this morning is spiritually, how do we apply what we learn from God's word and from this text to our own lives to be who he wants us to be? Well, the truth is every message that we teach here at South City ought to come back to Jesus. Every single message ought to be about Jesus Christ in every possible way. And so today is no different. We want this message and every message to be about Jesus. And what's interesting is not only is this message from Jesus, it's about Jesus. So I want to show you five aspects about King Jesus in this text that we have today in these six uh, quick verses. Revelation 2 verse 12, I want you to see that number one, Jesus is all-powerful. He says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, he's speaking about himself. He's speaking about uh, Jesus. He's speaking about himself. He is all-powerful. Now, what's interesting is this is the only reference to all seven of these churches that he makes about a reference of, of a sword. So why would he make a reference to the church in Pergamum about a sword and not to the others? Well, as you dig a little deeper, you realize that uh, Rome, as they came and took control of this city, the, ru the ruling pro of Rome would have been given a sword. Now, his sword uh, 
wouldn't have been uh, necessarily that special of a sword. There were, swords were not rare uh, there in this city. But his sword carried a meaning behind it. And the meaning was that he could take life if he chose, chose to do so. If, if there was somebody he, he didn't like, if there was somebody who said something that he didn't like, in other words, if Christians didn't do what he wanted them to do, then he could use that sword and any sword to take their life. That sword represented ultimate authority, ultimate power in life or death. And so when Jesus begins this letter to the church at Pergamum, the Pergamines would have known immediately what he was referring to when he says, no, 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 make no mistake, I'm the one with the double-edged sword. In other words, I'm the one with the power, I'm the one with the final authority, and I will bring that authority to protect you, to care for you. So that's, that's kind of some of the meaning behind the sword that Jesus is speaking of. Also, it's not a sword to harm, uh, to murder. This sword is to speak truth, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. But this would have resonated with the Pergamines. They would have known what Jesus was speaking of and the fact that he was making a statement about the fact that he is all-powerful. Here's the second thing I want you to see about Jesus in verse 13. Jesus is proud of those who are faithful. He's proud of, of those who have been faithful. Verse 13 says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus is acknowledging that there are these believers in Pergamum, and they are holding fast to his name and not denying the faith in a very difficult city, very difficult um, environment. In fact, he says two times in this one verse that this is where Satan dwells, not only where he dwells, but this is where his throne is. In other words, this is the capital of where Satan's activity is playing out. So imagine trying to be a witness to Jesus in that city. And Jesus sees the people who are holding fast and, and being his faithful witness, and he encourages them. You know, I was thinking about different cities that we have different feelings about. You might think Las Vegas is a city that is just a, they call it sin city, and there's just anything goes. Or you might feel that way about New Orleans at different times of the year, or different places in that part of that city, or different places, Bangkok, or different cities around the world that represent evil and uh, demonic activity. And there's many places around the world that do. Uh, this writer, Paul Ellis, has written this book called Letters from Jesus, speaking about the letters uh, to the churches in Revelation. It's been a wonderful book for me in this series. He says, if the devils of hell conspired to create a city that consumed its own citizens with bloodthirsty abandon, it's hard to imagine how they could have exceeded the unfettered depravity of the idolatrous Pergamines. He's basically saying, if the devils in hell could come up with any city that, with whatever it was to look like, they, they couldn't have done much better than what Pergamum uh, looked like. It was an evil, evil place. And yet there's believers who are holding fast. They're not denying the faith. And so Jesus encourages them uh, in their faith and says, I'm proud of how you're standing for me. What does it mean that they were holding fast to his name? Well, these Roman emperors and these Roman rulers, like I said, some of them wanted to be called Lord and God or Savior and King. And so as some of them would question Christians and say, will you bow to me as your Lord and God or your Savior and King? Christians, of course, would say, no, because we don't believe you're our Lord and Savior, our Lord and King. That's, there's only one Lord and Savior. His name is Jesus. And if they were to do that, they were holding fast to his 
name as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. There is no one beside him. And of course, many people uh, were martyred as a result of that. In fact, one of those he speaks of is this man by the name of Antipas. Antipas was likely the pastor of the church of Pergamum. He continued to preach the gospel of Jesus. He had been appointed by John uh, himself, the apostle John himself. He's preaching against sin. He's preaching against these these pagan uh, festivals and all these different things. Well, you can imagine the pagan priests didn't like that opposition. And so they end up literally murdering him. And the way they do it is they roast him alive in a bronze bull. In other words, Antipas died. He was martyred and he died in one of the idols he preached against. Horrible, horrible death and a murderous people in Pergamon. Yet Jesus calls him my faithful witness. And what's so sweet about that title, that phrase is Jesus himself is called a faithful witness to God in Revelation 1 and 3. The Bible says that Jesus was God's faithful witness. And here Jesus says the same thing of Antipas. He was my faithful witness. You know, I think that's what he wants to call us as well. He's proud of us when we stand for his name. We represent him. We don't deny the truth. We live uh, in an uncompromised way that honors Jesus with our lives. He's proud of us. Here's the third thing I want you to see about our King Jesus. Jesus protects his church from compromise. And we're going to camp out here just for a few minutes here, uh, verses 14 through 16, where it says this. It says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. So here, Jesus, we've seen him encourage believers in Pergamum, just as he did in Ephesus. And now he's going to rebuke some some people in in, uh, Pergamum as well. He mentions two different folks, and we're going to take a look through that historical lens. Uh, He mentions Balaam and Balak. Now, some of you might remember Balaam from Sunday school and and remember Balaam's donkey. Balaam had this donkey that that didn't want to go further uh, down the road because there was an angel with a a flaming sword in front of him, and the the donkey could see the angel, and Balaam couldn't. And the donkey finally laid over as he was going to die, and Balaam's hitting this donkey, and finally the donkey turns around and speaks to him in a human voice. Uh, We remember that story as kids, but we forget that that angel was the Lord trying to tell Balaam to stop being deceitful, to stop uh, leading people astray. So what happens is Balaam ends up getting Moabite women to invite Israelite men coming out of Egypt. The whole whole crew of Israel is coming away from, uh, from Egypt. And these Moabite women invite these Israelite men into their pagan festivals and ultimately seduce them into sexual immorality. Well, it costs tens of thousands of people their lives. Tens of thousands of people die as a result of this compromise, of this disobedience. Well, in the same way, what Jesus is speaking of, and the reason he gives an example of Balaam and Balak, is because there are very evil festivals that are taking place in Pergamum. Uh, Pagan festivals along these pagan temples and, and all these different places. And Jesus is saying, Listen, there's some in your church that are going to the same kind of pagan festivals. They're eating food sacrificed to idols, and they're, they're, they're a part of sexual immorality, just as in the story of Balaam and Balak. And he's saying, it's not good. you got people that are offering sacrifices to Caesar. In other words, they're following people's approval instead of following Jesus. 
Well, Jesus obviously has a problem with this, and he's trying to tell them that's not how it should be. And then he also mentions another historical group from uh, the early church, a group called the Nicolaitans. We talked about them when we spoke about the church at Ephesus, because these are the only two places in Scripture that speak of this group called the Nicolaitans. Um, The Nicolaitans, you might remember, in Ephesus, Jesus actually commended the church of, of Ephesus. He said, you didn't put up with the Nicolaitans. Uh, You stopped them. You didn't allow their influence in in the church. And he commended them, said, good job. But he rebukes the church at Pergamum because they did allow the influence of the Nicolaitans. See, the Nicolaitans were preaching that it was okay, sexual immorality was okay, and eating food sacrificed to idols was all okay. We're all covered by grace. Grace is greater than any sin that we have. You see, that that is a true statement, but it's a half-truth. It's a deceptive truth. Uh, Jude, the the brother of James, speaks to people like this that are kind of have crept into the church. Uh, Jude verse 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude's saying, listen, there are people in the church that are twisting the true meaning of grace. They're saying that we can do anything we want to do for the rest of our lives and grace is going to cover us. No big deal. We don't have to worry about it. Of course, we know that that would be taking advantage of God's grace and that if we truly are changed by his grace, we don't want to, we don't want to abuse grace. We want to have freedom, yes, but have freedom to be obedient to God. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. We don't want to abuse grace. We want to have self-control. And I remember in college, I had a friend who was uh, kind of become a famous DJ in Christian music, and he worked in a big city at a big uh, Christian radio station, and occasionally we would have phone calls, and he sort of became a mentor to me. I really looked up to him as, as, a, as a student. And I remember telling him my struggles and my issues and all the things I was walking through, and one day he told me, he said, Drew, you keep telling me you're worried about sin and all these things in your life. He said, don't worry about sin anymore. Jesus has got you. And I said, yeah, I, I know that he covers me, I'm forgiven. He goes, no, 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 I mean, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter anymore. Jesus has covered it. And I remember feeling confused, going, wait, you mean do whatever I want? I, I can just live however I choose? And he's like, yeah. See, the reality is he was a modern-day Nicolaitan. He was somebody who was saying, let's live however we want to live. But the truth is there are consequences to sin, and sin enslaves our lives, and to this day, He lives a homosexual lifestyle. He's far from God. And following that mindset led him further and further away from Christ. You know, Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians about this issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. And he speaks also about grace. 1 Corinthians 8, 8 through 9, he says, Food will not commend us to God. Uh, We are no worse off if we do not eat or no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. See, Paul's saying, don't abuse this grace. Yeah, it doesn't matter what food you eat, this or that, for for you, if it's just about you. But as we talked in this series that we just finished called Neighbor, when we love the Lord, it will affect how we love people. It should. And so everything we do, we ought to be considerate of those around us. And, And Paul's saying, Just because you have the right to eat this or eat that doesn't mean you should. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, a little further down in chapter 10, verse 23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. 
Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So Paul here is, is helping us understand we can't take advantage of grace. We have to live in such a way that honors Christ and serves those around us. That's what love really looks like. You know, one of the biggest issues in the early church was this issue of eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. It was a big, big deal. It was one of the main topics uh, that came out of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Um, Jews back in that time wouldn't have really had a problem with this because it would have been against the rabbinic law to eat food sacrificed to idols. They would have never been around it. It wasn't about the Jews. It was about the Gentiles who had always been around it. They had always eaten food sacrificed to idols. It had never been an issue. And in a city like Pergamum with so many temples and so many idols and so many places to worship demons, there would have been a lot of meat being sold that had been at one point sacrificed to idols. So Paul is, is, is helping us understand that. Uh, and, and these new Christians, these Greeks, these Gentiles, it would have been a difficult thing to understand and try and wrap your brain around why we can't eat this or why we should. So let me just give you a little background on these idol festivals that are taking place, especially in Pergamum. They were evil. Um, the, the festivals began with prayers to demons. Uh, I even read of one group uh, that ran around these festivals. They would put black hoods on and they would take sticks and bludgeon people to death within the festival. Uh, I've never seen the movie The Purge, but I know that the premise is basically about one night or one day or whatever where you can do anything you want. And that premise has to come from this story. I mean, this is exactly what was taking place in Pergamum. They started out with these demonic prayers and then they devolved into drunken orgies and incredible violence and murder. In fact, uh, Paul's apprentice, Timothy, uh, according to Christian tradition, ran out into the streets at one point. He was the bishop of the churches of Ephesus. He runs into the streets to stop one of these pagan festivals, stop people from worshiping demons, and they don't like it, and they drag his body around town and ultimately beat him to death, and that's how Timothy dies. It's an incredibly awful death, and it gives you a little insight about how evil and demonic this city was. And the Romans didn't do anything about it. In fact, the Romans uh, found a way to make this barbaric uh, practice of death for entertainment uh, something that they did in all of their encampments, all of their occupations all over the world. Uh, of course, the Colosseum is known for gladiator fights and, and where they would throw in men with wild animals and just crazy entertainment-based murder. This was an evil evil place. And yet Jesus is saying, listen, you need to choose who you're going to serve. Jesus is saying, listen, I know you're in a difficult place. And for those of you who are living for me and standing for my name, I'm proud of you. But for those of you that are kind of in and out, you're, you're wayward, you're, you're wishy-washy, you're compromising, you want to be connected to the church, but you don't want to be committed to Jesus. He's saying, you need to repent. You know, even as I say that phrase, I think, how many people in the church today want to be connected to the church, yet they don't want to be committed to Jesus? They want some benefits of a church family, but they don't want to be obedient to Christ. Friends, can I remind you that Jesus said, in order to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to uh, die to yourself. You have to pick up your cross and follow me. The Christian life begins with our death. It begins with our ability to lay down who we are and take up who Jesus is. 
It reminded me of, of Joshua when he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think we all have to make that decision individually and even for our homes. Who are we going to be? Jesus was asking these uh, people in this church in Pergamon, who are you going to be? Are you, are you going to follow me? Even if it means your life, will you still follow me to death? You know, Jeff preached about the, the believers in Smyrna and said when, when they would die that he would give them a crown of life and it would be the same for these believers in Pergamum. You know, I'm, I'm convicted about believers all around the world who continually give their lives as martyrs for Jesus. Did you know that every single year between 100 and 150,000 believers in Jesus die holding fast to his name? Between 100 and 150,000 people give up their lives to be martyred for the cause of Christ. And the question I have for myself, the question I have for you this morning is, would you be willing to do that? Are you there? See, the sad reality is in this church in Pergamum, it had become so compromised, so full of people wanting to be seen as Christians and yet unwilling to make sacrifices and choices that truly identify them as Jesus' people. Well, Jesus gives uh, the solution. It's the same solution he gave to the church at Ephesus, those people who had lost their first love with him. He gives the same solution to these people who have been a church full of compromise, wishy-washy. He says, repent. He says, repent. Agree with me that this is sinful and go the other direction. It reminds me a lot of the Church of America. And I pray that we would hear the voice of the Lord, that we would have ears to hear and hearts to move us to repentance. You know, this writer of this book, uh, Letters from, uh, from Jesus, talks about in his book about, you know, sometimes in the church we choose doors. Sometimes people become Christians and they choose the door of law. And if they can go through this door, then, then it feels good to them because it's uh, filled with rules and regulations. And they know that they can be blessed as long as they follow the rules. And they can be accepted as long as they follow the rules. And, and if they follow the rules, then they can be judgmental of other people who aren't quite following the rules just like them. No, friends, that, that is not God's way. And sometimes we fall into uh, the other mistake. If it's not the law, we fall into this other mistake and go through this other door of license. And, and people think, oh, there are no rules. There, there, there are no laws. There are no worries. I can live however I want to live. But the truth is, that's a deceptive practice. It, 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 there's no life there. There's a promise of freedom, but truly it will lead you to uh, enslavement and death. There are always consequences to sin. One door puts a price tag on the free grace of God, and the other door removes the price tags of sin. There's only one door that matters for us as believers, and that's Jesus. This is what he said in John 10, 9. He says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You know, we studied in the Galatians series a lot about that law door. There were these Pharisees trying to, to make people walk through this life of, of, of service in such a way that they had to do certain things in order to be accepted, in order to be saved, they said. Of course, we knew that that was another gospel. That's not the gospel of Jesus. We're saved because of what Jesus has done, not by what we do. And then here's the Nicolaitan saying, hey, we're, we're covered by grace. Let's, let's do whatever we want. We don't ever have to live uh, in an honorly, uh, worthy way. 
serving Jesus in obedience. Both are lies. Both are lies. We have to live by grace and by truth. Grace is given to us and it forgives us for every sin from the past, present, and future. But we also have to live in the truth that causes us to live in such a way that honors Jesus with our lives. Not because our eternity depends on it, like we're trying to keep up in some way, but because we want to please the Lord. We want to be in intimate relationship with him. We know that sin breaks that relationship. It breaks that communication between us. It enslaves us and causes death and death alone. There's always consequences to sin. The reality is we should be struggling between the two. There should be a tension between the two as true believers, resting in the grace of Jesus and seeking yet to live in the holiness that honors God because we love him because we want to be in relationship with him. So Jesus offers this one solution to the Pergamum church, the same one he offered to the Ephesians, repent. Repent. If you've been living a double life, if you've been living living this duplicitous dual life, you're one person here and you're one person there, it's time to stop. If you've ever wondered if that's okay, hear Jesus rebuking these people who've tried to live this compromised life, hear him saying to them and to us, it's not okay anymore. It's time to stop the compromise. It's time for people who call themselves Christians and Christ followers to be that and to live that way, not to judge other people, just to judge yourself, to be authentically in love with him and seeking to honor him with all of your life. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see about our King Jesus. He He's our prevailing king. He's our prevailing king. It says in verse 16, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, Jesus makes this comment about the sword and about those who don't repent. He says, if you refuse to repent, then I'm coming with a sword. This is, uh, this is not Jesus coming to cut people up with a sword, Okay. This is not a murderous Jesus. This is a truth-telling Jesus. Uh, His words, the word of God, is going to cut through the lies and deceptions of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. It's going to cut through uh, the lies of our current uh, false religions and false doctrines in so many churches around our country today. The sword of the truth of Jesus' word will cut through that junk. This is what Hebrews 4 says. 12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Friend, I believe even right now, even through the technology that we're using to preach this message, that the very Holy Spirit of God is already at work and active in your life. And that sort of truth, that sort of the Spirit is piercing to the division of, of soul and spirit. How do you even know where the one begins and one ends? We don't, but the sword of the spirit can divide. See, how we view truth divides people. Some people say this is truth, and some people they say that is truth. My, our opinion at South City is that the truth is the word of God. The truth has a name. His name is Jesus, and everything he says is the truth. He brings that truth against all those who are unwilling to repent. May we be people willing to see the compromise of our lives and get on our faces before Jesus and repent. Repentance is not just a prayer we pray. 
It's a lifestyle we live. It's a turning and walking in a different direction, becoming who he wants us to be. All right, so here's who Jesus is in this text. We've said Jesus is all-powerful. We've said Jesus is proud of those who remain faithful. We say Jesus protects his church uh, from compromise. We've also said Jesus is our prevailing king, but he's also a promise keeper. This is such a beautiful part of this text. Verse 17, he says, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and with a new name written uh, on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus says, I will give to the one who conquers some hidden manna. Of course, many of us know that manna is the bread that fell from heaven uh, to the Israelites when they were going through the wilderness, when they were on this journey. They, they had to eat, and God provided for their nourishment through bread that fell from heaven to the ground. And they would take that bread, and they would eat of that bread, and then uh, he would give them fresh bread every single day. You see, what Jesus is speaking of right here is, is not just the same manna that he gave the Israelites. What he's trying to say is uh, he's using imagery here. So we look through the imagery lens and we say, what do you mean, Jesus? What he's talking about here is satisfaction. Have you ever eaten a wonderful meal? Maybe it's your birthday meal and your favorite meal and favorite restaurant, and you sit back and you just feel so satisfied. That's what he's talking about, except not food for our stomachs. He's talking about all of our lives. Jesus is saying, he is the only one who can truly satisfy your life. He's saying, some of you have been trying to eat whatever the world offers you. Some of you have been living however you want to live, but he's saying, you're trying to find satisfaction in everything else, but the reality is, I'm the only one who truly gives you satisfaction. I am the only one who can satisfy. Jesus speaks about this hidden manna, uh, and the truth is, he is truly the bread from heaven. John 6, 32 says this, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, he's speaking to his disciples. He says, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never hunger thirst. Friends, Jesus is not talking about bread here. <laughs> He's talking about the satisfaction of all of life. What are you chasing in life to be satisfied? Is it another business deal if you have just a little bit more money? Is it, what is it? Is it, is it some sort of high with some sort of drug or prescription medication? Is it some sort of protection or safety um, medicating thing that you have with alcohol? Is it with buying and shopping? What is the vice that you think satisfies you and you can rest. Friends, can I just tell you, there's no rest apart from Jesus. And you will continue to search, continue to hunt, continue to look for something to satisfy the emptiness in your heart and in your life and in your soul until you find the only one who satisfies. It's Jesus. He is the bread from heaven. Well, then he mentions this white stone. He says he's going to give those who conquer a white stone. Most theologians don't really have a clue as to what that stone represents. It's an image of some kind, and we don't really know what it means. But what matters most about the stone is that it has a name written on it. Jesus is going to give those who conquer, those who conquer 
uh, compromise, those who stand for him even in difficult locations and difficult settings, he's going to give a stone that has a name written on it, a new name for you, a new name that only you know and only he knows. You know, I've been married for over 25 years, and my wife and I have all kinds of little pet names. They're sweet names, names nobody else knows. I could say a name to her, and she would look at me, and she would know that name. And we would laugh and joke, and it would be a sweet, intimate connection to one another. Listen, this is kind of the thing that Jesus is talking about. He's saying, we're going to have such an intimate relationship, you're going to have a name that nobody knows. But it's not just about uh, intimacy and relationship. It's also about identity. Jesus is going to give you a new name. He's basically saying, I I want this new name to represent you because I want you to be mine. I want you to be connected to me. I want you to be satisfied in me alone. Paul Ellis writes in his book, Letters from Heaven, he says, Jesus has given you a new name and a new identity. Your name is not sinner, and your identity is not defined by your imperfect performance. Hallelujah. You are a dearly loved child of God, so act like it. Be who God made you to be. Living from your God-given identity is the most rewarding life of all. Why would anyone eat the junk food of earth when they can feast on heavenly manna? So friends, at first look, this might seem like a confusing letter to this church in Pergamum. But what does it mean for us? Honestly, let's just get down to brass tacks. What does it mean for us? Well, it means that God is pleased in us when we take a stand for him, even in difficult locations, difficult settings, in, in um, situations where there's real persecution. He is with us. He is proud of us. Don't deny the faith of Jesus. We also need to see that he is not going to tolerate compromise in his church, and neither should we as his church. Author and uh, professor Daniel Aiken says, Compromise never happens quickly. He says you hardly notice the change. It's so incremental. You hardly even notice that something's changing. Compromise always lowers the original standards you once held important. Compromise uh, is seldom offensive because it's perceived as loving. Hmm. Sometimes we begin to do things that we think are loving because we don't want to speak the truth in love to somebody. Can I tell you the most loving thing to do is to give them the truth of Jesus? to help them know the truth of who he is and what he expects from us as believers. Aiken says that compromise leads you to eventually accept when you once, uh, what you once rejected and even thought repulsive. At some point, compromise leads you to accept the things you once would have never heard of, never considered ever. That's what compromise does. And he goes on to give this quote we've all heard that says, What one generation tolerates, the next will accept, and then what the next generation accepts, the next will celebrate. Friends, that scares me to death because I have two little girls, and I want them um, to be in a generation that loves Jesus and makes him known. But I see our culture tolerating sinfulness. I see churches tolerating sinfulness. Uh, I see uh, them accepting sinfulness, and my prayer is that I pray they won't get to a place where they're celebrating sinfulness. We even see that some in our culture. So here, here's, here's the end, folks. If you find yourself this morning thinking about this message and this message from Jesus to this church and to us, 
Do you sense in your heart that you've been living a life of compromise? Are you wishy-washy? Are you wanting to be connected to the church but not committed to Jesus and obedience? What does your life look like? Can I just give you the same solution Jesus did? Is to repent. Repent. That means agree with God that you're living in sin. Ask him to forgive you your sin. And live a different direction towards God, not towards your own way. And see your life changed. And we as believers, we have to live between the tension of grace and truth. Resting in the finished work of Jesus and what he's done on the cross. But also authentically seeking to be obedient to him. To serve him with all that we are. And to love him with our lives. And then lastly, can I tell you, I'm so thankful that Jesus satisfies our every need. He's all we need. Just like the manna that fell from heaven for the Israelites, Jesus is the bread of life. And for those of us that find ourselves in Jesus, we can never hunger or thirst again because he satisfied everything we have need of. Friends, my prayer is that this morning, the word of God would be true. It tells us that it doesn't return void. So I pray that as as I preach this message, as I speak these things to you, I know it has been convicting my life because there's seasons of compromise in my life. And I've been seeking the Lord, asking him to forgive me. Help, me. help me, Lord, to not be so quick to give in to sinful moments, to sinful thoughts, to sinful actions. Help me not to live a life of compromise. That is my prayer for you as we learn from the church that was full of compromise, the church at Pergamum. Pray that God would make us who he wants us to be at South City. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for your truth and for your word. Lord, please forgive us of our sin. Lord, please forgive us of our compromise. God, please help us to uh, stand for you and, and hold fast to your name in the middle of persecution, in the middle of scary situations, in the middle of... of moments where we, we feel like we're being um, forced to choose you or something else. Help us to always choose you. And God, I pray that you would help us as we realize that sometimes we can be people of compromise. Would you help us, Lord Jesus, to repent and seek you? And as we overcome this sinfulness, Lord, only by your grace and by what you've already done for us on the cross, Lord, help us to be connected to you. Help us to be connected to you in such a way that that we realize you are all we need and that you long for this intimate relationship with us and for us to be identified in you. God, thank you for your word in this beautiful text. I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves even now in the kitchen, on the couch, in the bedroom, wherever people are watching this, Lord. May they just take a few moments, even as I say amen, and just say, Lord, where, what are the areas of compromise in my life? Help me to be obedient to you and give me the courage to change and the grace to lead me there, to be different, to honor you with all that I am, I pray. I pray that of my own heart, God, and I pray that of our church. Help us to not be a church of compromise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Listen, thank you so much for joining us today. I pray that this is a wonderful day. We'll get back with you in the next day or two about our communication plan of of when services are going to open back up here at our campus. Hopefully it's soon, but I'm praying for you, and I pray that God would continue to do the work in you that he longs to do to, to make us all more like Jesus. God bless you guys. Have a good day.